Welcome to Downstage Center, a production of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. We're very pleased today to welcome Felicia Rashad, who is the current 2004 Tony Award winner for the Best Leading Actress in a Play, and also, parenthetically, the first African-American to win in this category. Congratulations to you on that. Thank you. Uh, let me just recap for our audience some of the shows you've been in previously. Jelly's Last Jam on Broadway, Into the Woods, Dream Girls, The Wiz, Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death. Recent off-Broadway shows include Blue, The Story, Everybody's Ruby, and The Vagina Monologues. You have received the NAACP Image Awards for Best Actress in a Comedy Series for your performances on The Cosby Show and Cosby. And, of course, America knows you as Claire Huxtable. So welcome. Thank you very much. Just to get things going, this uh, show is a, a revival, basically, of a show that uh, first appeared in 1959, as I recall, Raisin in the Sun. Uh, could you just kind of give us, for our listeners, the, the overall uh, context, the story of the show, so we set the stage, so to speak? This play is a play about human dignity and unconditional love. That's it in a nutshell. It explores a family dynamic. There are three generations living under one roof, and that roof is very small, as it is a two-bedroom apartment. This family has lived in this apartment, which is a tenement apartment, I might add, for well over 35 years. The father has passed away at the opening of the play, Everyone is anxiously awaiting the arrival of an insurance check for $10,000. $10,000 in 1959 was a lot of money. And $10,000 in 1959 for this family was an incredible sum of money. These are people who could work their whole lives and not earn $10,000. There are three generations, and there are hopes and dreams in each generation, and there are also changing values with each generation. There is the mother, Lena Younger. Which is your part. Which is the character that I play. And there is Walter Lee Younger and his wife, Ruth, and their 10-year-old son, Travis, who sleeps on the living room couch. And then there is the daughter, Benita, who's in college. She is, without question, the first member of this family to attend college, and she has high aspirations of becoming a doctor. This check is arriving, and Walter Lee, who's a chauffeur, who um, has really does not have a uh, extensive formal education. He's been working in this capacity most of his life, has dreams and aspirations of becoming an entrepreneur. His sister wants to go to medical school. His wife would just like to live someplace different. Lena Younger wants to hold her family together and Travis, the young son, the grandson for Lena, is watching everything happen, and he's learning. Now, this is 
a masterpiece of the theater and has been acknowledged as one for many years. It's and was also made into a very well received film. When did you first encounter this story? Had you seen it many years ago? Was it new to you when you were asked to do this? Do you remember when you first saw Raisin? Yes, of course I do. It certainly wasn't new to me. Um, I was aware of it in 1959. As a young girl growing up in Houston, it was on the uh, front page of Ebony Magazine a couple of times, Jet Magazine a few times. So this was very big news in our community that there was this play on Broadway. At the time, in 1959, this play was being equated to a civil rights play because of a move that this family makes at the end of the play. But that was not the playwright's intention. And she was a little disturbed about that. And if you read things that she has written, letters, um, diaries, commentary, you see that she was she was disturbed that people took this as um, a civil rights play and disturbed that people thought in the end when this family makes its move out of this tenement into what had been a segregated community that it was a happy ending and that all the problems were solved. That's not what the playwright was saying at all. And how do you think audiences... How do you think the perception of the play is different now? Do you think people see the play clearer for what it is? Do you think they see it as a history piece? It's an amazing play in that people are hearing for the first time. I know I was, and I performed this play twice, once in college and here in New York City in its 25th year anniversary at the McBurney Y. Playing which role? Ruth. Playing Ruth. Um... People are hearing more of the playwright for the first time because there's been this distance provided by time and the imagery has been lost to some and never seen by others. So it's remarkable that this play holds today in 2004 in terms of its family dynamic and there's something that everyone can relate to in terms of family, which is why we have the most diverse audience in the Broadway theaters today. Our audiences are so diverse, it's amazing. And what do you attribute that to? Well, the casting. Without question, the casting. Sean Combs, as Walter Lee Younger, brings a new audience, a younger audience. They're eager to see him, and within five minutes after the rise of the curtain, they realize they're seeing him in A Raisin in the Sun, and then they're caught up in the story and caught up in the play. And it's fascinating. It's about... um, birth control, it's about pan-Africanism, it's about um, money uh, and its importance in life, it's about the value of human dignity, and ultimately it's about the younger generations having, having to come to terms with accepting the older generation's values because they're rooted in something that is solid and true. I, I read somewhere that at first you didn't particularly want to do this role in the play. You had some trepidation about it. But you then you decided that you would do it, obviously, and you won the Tony for it. What was that initial hesitancy uh, based upon? It was based upon the imagery. 
it was based upon what I had seen and experienced in previous productions. The the people were not fluid. The the characters the, there was something about them that was stiff and and unrealistic mm-hmm. for me, um, and especially Lena. Uh, I likened her unto a piece of furniture with a wig on it. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how well, I. George C. Wolf, with who you've worked, has even parodied <laughs> this this play. So, but he came to see this play, uh-huh. and he enjoyed it because this production has so much life. It has juice. Well, from that initial hesitancy, what changed your mind? Why did you ultimately decide that you would do the show? Kenny Leon, the director, is uh-huh. a director with whom I've enjoyed professional relationship for the past almost 10 years. And um, I said, Kenny, why? Why? He said, you're going to bring something different. I said, Kenny, I don't like the play. He said, Rashad, <laughs> read the play. Mm-hmm. Now, it had been many years. Mm-hmm since I'd read this play. It had been 20 years. Mm -hmm. I began reading the play, and all of a sudden I was hearing things that I hadn't heard before. And I was hearing subtext that I'd never experienced with this play before. And I thought, oh my goodness, this play is deceptively simple. There is a lot going on with these people. There's so much happening with this woman. She's holding so many things because she's had to. The, the day I saw the play, it was a matinee, and there were a lot of young people, mm-hmm. children. I'm not saying four-year-old and five-year-old, but children, 10, 12, teenagers. And my thought was, I bet many of them have never been to a Broadway play, maybe a musical, but probably not a play. What, what do you think they, they leave with? They seem to enjoy it, and they seem to be paying rapt attention. What do you think they leave the show with? I think they leave the show with an increased appreciation for theater mm-hmm. and its power to inspire thought and reflection and even as a catalyst for change. And also, I think, seeing real people on the stage, not a TV screen or a movie screen, but real living people literally feet away from them performing a play. Yes. It has to be quite an experience. I think it is quite an experience for them. There's always, when people have images that they bring from other fields or from where people have first seen them, there's always this question of expectations and what people bring. And, and in fact, my reaction, I have to tell you, when you made your first entrance... I gasped quietly and politely in the theater only because I have always seen you as so elegant and and there was always glamour about you in everything I've seen you do and I mean I work in the theater I know you're not one's an actor but I did gasp and of course you have people coming in probably not even knowing what to expect from Sean Combs and Sanaa Lathan I don't think has a great deal of stage experience so people come in from her film roles what do you think happens with the with the expectations when people first come in because you're all drawing them based on on different constituencies and then and then how do they come together that's a very good question people do come with expectations it's inevitable yes but the experience 
is that within minutes after that family has been totally revealed because we each make our entrances in the play the way we do within minutes after that total revelation of the family people are going with the story and they're going with it it's really um it's really something to hear people in the audience sigh or go when Walter Lee picks up his coat to walk out instead of saying to his wife, we're going to have this child. We're not going to give this child up. Their, their disappointment, and this is not all feminine disappointment. There are men in the audience who moan at this mm-hmm. when, he, when he walks out. Um, and it's interesting also, it's interesting to hear um, the change in thought. For instance, when Walter Lee is, is saying that he's going to call Linder and we're going to do business with this man, and he says he has a rant about how he's going to tell the man, write the check and the house is yours, members in the audience laugh, you know. Some of them laugh and some of them applaud. They think that's a good thing. Just take the money. But as he continues to speak and you see his frame of mind and you see what he is descending to, the laughter begins to peel off and when he gets to his final statement on the floor where he's acting, where he's doing like a, a coon show, there's there's a, a a bewilderment that takes hold of the young people, and it's tangible. You can feel it. Mm-hmm. You can feel it. All of a sudden, it's not the right thing. And then in the end, when he announces that he's not going to accept this money, there's great applause that he has decided to honor his father's life and to honor his own life by moving ahead in fulfillment of this dream that his parents were holding for him, even though he really wanted to do something very different. And sitting in the audience, you can sense the tension building in the audience and rooting for Walter Lee to do the right thing. Yes. That when that finally does happen, there's this great emotional release, this actual cheering from the audience. They they believe in all of you on stage as real people, not as actors playing a part, but as real people that they have invested their own emotions in for those two hours or so in the theater. And when you leave the theater, you feel emotionally both drained and gratified at the same time. It's really amazing. (laughs) (laughs) You're laughing. Why? I'm laughing because my sister says, aren't you tired? I'm worn out. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. It does take something out of an audience because you do... Get invested in that show emotionally. Yeah, she says. My sister says it's an emotional roller coaster because things just happen so quickly. Everybody's elated one moment, mm-hmm. and in the depths of despair, the next. Now, your sister, of course, is Debbie Allen that you're talking about, right? Yes. Now she was in uh, the musical version of this about three decades ago, was she not? That's right. Yeah. Did you see her in that? Of course I did. Of course. Of yeah, course I yeah. did. And how does, the sh- how does the play that you're in compare at all with the musical? Obviously, there are no songs, but it's the same basic story. It's the same story, but we're really... Um, 
we're exploring this in a completely different way. The musical Raisin had some of that same imagery, imaging going on with a rotund mother with heavy hand and, you know, this was what I didn't like about the character. I said, "This, where is the woman? This woman has to be a woman. And when I read the play, I thought, okay, it isn't written so much in what she says, but if you understand it, it's there. This is a woman who has loved deeply. She loved her husband in every way a woman can love her husband. She loved him so much that even though he's been gone for three years, he passed away three years ago, he's still with her. She still holds him. And she doesn't have to talk about it because in real life, people don't. Well, you play a mother in this show. You played America's quintessential mother, Claire Huxtable, in The Cosby Show. After the Tony Awards at the press conference, you spoke very lovingly about your own mother, about growing up in Houston, about uh, the era being a Jim Crow era where you were denied access to certain areas. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Oh, it's... And and how much of your own upbringing do you bring to these roles that you've been playing so well? I bring my entire upbringing to these roles (laughs) because it, it is my upbringing that has afforded me the understanding of of human nature, of myself. Um, segregation was legal in Houston, Texas when I was growing up. This was in the 50s. This was in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And my mother, who was from Chester, South Carolina, my mother, Vivian Ayers, is a poet and a scholar. And she was determined that her children would not be scarred or at least that she would minimize it. So when we were very young and we saw an amusement park or we saw um, a movie or we saw anything that we wanted to go to but couldn't go to because of segregation, my mother would say, we can't go there because that's for people. um, It's a private club, she'd say, and we're not members of that club. So if you can imagine little ones, we'd say, oh, we're we're not members of that club. Okay. And we'd go and and do something else. And the something else would always be centered around something my mother conceived. For instance, one day, and I'll never forget it, she pulled all of the children in the neighborhood into the house. And with candied Easter eggs, she explained note value in music. It was my first lesson in fractions. <laughs> I was all of five years old, mm-hmm. and I never forgot it. How she said, this is 4-4 four, four time, and she'd hold the Easter egg up, and she'd say, and this is a whole note. And in one measure, it will get four beats. And she proceeded to divide it up until she got to 16 pieces. Mm-hmm. And she showed it, showed us what it looked like in musical notation. And then we went out and we threw rocks and climbed trees and did all things kids did. And and ate the candied eggs. And ate the candied eggs. Or she would have um, choral speech. Or once she took all of the the, uh, furniture in the living room and moved it to the side, and we had tumbling lessons. And she'd make us go across the floor with these Catherine Dunham steps Mm -hmm. because her cousins danced with Catherine Dunham. Mm 
Uh. And once she took the banister off the hallway stairs, moved the dining room furniture out of the dining room, put the banister on the wall so it was a floor bar. It was a bar for for Debbie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she hired a teacher who was um, a ballet master from the Houston uh, Ballet Foundation that Debbie couldn't go to because of segregation. And he came to the house and gave Debbie private lessons. Now, in the roles of Lena that you're currently playing, or Claire Huxtable or the others, how much of your mother and your mother's values do you bring to that that role? Well, I don't think about that consciously. But even subconsciously. Subconsciously? Obviously, your upbringing, your mother's influence. Well, in my experience, the mother is the first teacher. In my experience, the mother is the great advocator. In my experience, the mother is the fierce warrior for her children. Fierce and unrelenting. Oh, yes. In my experience, the father is the bold protector, and he provides, and he is always present, always present, and loving, Mm -hmm. and lots of fun. (laughs) But it was my mother who really sought out ways for us to grow as artists. It was my mother who brought those influences into our home. We would have artists sitting around the living room all the time, talking about content, texture, and form. I grew up listening to these great debates. We'd hide underneath the coffee table and watch from one to the next as they had their very explosive and dynamic commentaries. And and we loved it as children. That's how we grew. Now, I have to ask, you're in a play which was certainly groundbreaking in its day in terms of an African-American drama by an African-American woman on Broadway in 1959. But it took until 2004 for the first African-American actress to win a Tony Award for a leading role in a play. It's only a couple of years ago that Halle Berry became the first African-American actress to win an Academy Award in the leading role. It's amazing that with all of the changes that this is just happening. How does that, how does that feel to you to to be a milestone, to be a landmark now? Ooh, I, I didn't know that this was historically different. I have to tell you, if you go on the Internet now and Google Felicia Rashad, <laughs> pages and pages of articles about you being the first. It's, it's unbelievable in multiple languages. Oh, that's amazing. I'm not making it up. Absolutely true. That's amazing. Because I didn't know that. When when this was this question was asked of me with in press interviews immediately following the the presentation and I was I didn't know that. Um You actually seemed quite taken aback when the reporter asked you that. I was yeah. because I didn't know that. Yeah. And and my my initial response was well well, what happened? Was nobody else nominated? <laughs> that was my. That was my. Um, I don't. I. Um, hmm. 
I'm very glad that so many people are happy about this for all of the different reasons. I really am. For me, I'm happiest about this because of work. Because it's about the work. I was thinking about it this morning, and I thought, as artists, our perception is so different. As artists, we know that people are much more alike than different. And so this morning I was musing, it's going to be great. Humanity is going to arrive at the time when we're embracing each other as each other and as our own selves. And these things will not be considerations anymore. We will take great joy in our cultural differences. We will respect them. We will honor them. We will take the time to learn about different traditions. And even though they're not our own, we will hold them in regard because it's the right and human, truly human thing to do. And I smiled at that. I thought, it is going to happen. It's going to happen. And you talk about the work you have in the past couple of years been doing an extraordinary amount of theater, not just here in New York, but regionally. Was that a choice to focus on theater? And, of course, we already know what your next project is going to be, and we're going to ask you about that in a minute. <laughs> but but uh, uh, Blues from Alabama Sky, uh, Blue at uh, the Roundabout, uh, the story at the public. It's its really been one show after another. Medea the at the Medea Alliance. Medea at the Alliance, of course. Yes. How did, how did that come about? And was that a choice where you just said to yourself, to your agents, I'm doing theater now for a while? Well, it was it was very interesting. It, it, initially, it, theater seemed to choose me. After the Cosby show um, ended, the first one, I didn't work for a year. There were many projects that were coming up that people just wouldn't see me for because I wasn't considered an actress. I was considered a personality. Mm. And they just wouldn't think of me for these things. So after a year, I received a call from George Wolfe to come into Jelly's Last Jam as Sweet Anita. When that show ended, which would be, um, I think it was the beginning of September or late August that same summer. It would be about 93. Yes. I didn't work for quite a while. Hmm. And in the spring, the following spring, I met Kenny Leon, and he was offering me Angel Allen in Blues for an Alabama Sky. And there were several productions of Blues for an Alabama Sky, and when we were on our second, I think it was, I received a call from uh, Mr. Cosby, and there was the second show. But I was always in the theater. I never left. I continued to work in the theater. And then there came a time when I really did have a choice. I was at the public theater in a play, and our schedule was being delayed, and there was a television pilot being done, money being you know offered that I really did need. You always need money. And I... I looked at it, and, and, I, and the opportunity presented itself where I could have gracefully walked away from the theater 
because of the delay in schedule and go do the television thing. But it didn't feel right because I had committed to that. I had committed. And I was getting paid $425 a week, but it didn't matter. I had committed to it, so I stayed there. And then there was theater, 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 and and I love it. <laughs> and I'm not sorry, and I love it. <laughs> well, do you want to tell us about Gem of the Ocean, which we understand is the next thing we get to see you in here in New York? Yes, August Wilson, our most prolific playwright in America and probably in the world, has written this anthology of plays, as you know, that cr- that chronicles the life in this community called the Hill District in Pittsburgh. Gem of the Ocean. Each play is is in a specific decade. Yeah, he's been doing. It's a cycle of ten plays That's in right. which there's one play for each decade, and Gem is the ninth play in the cycle, I believe. The yes, tenth play is already lurking out there. A play called Radio Golf. It's the ninth play in the in the cycle, and it takes place in the year 1910 and there is a there is a um, a community of people one generation has come through slavery another generation was born immediately after and now have grown to adulthood and what does it mean to be free really for a human being what is real freedom what is it this play is about many things, and it addresses many things that pertain to today in terms of the law and how the law is used and sometimes abused and its significance to human life and the responsibility we have as human beings to create those laws that are just and to uphold them. That's just one aspect of it. It's too numerous to talk about, except to say that I think it is without question one of his greatest works. Mm-hmm. And you've already done it in Los Angeles. And you, will you, is there a Boston pr- engagement before New York? Is yes, that the there plan? Is. Yes, so just there wanna, is. Since this is a national broadcast, we want to make sure everybody yeah, gets to know. If you can give us some dates. Do you know when off the top of your head Boston and New York dates are? Roughly? I think we're opening in Boston in September. Mm-hmm. Um, at the Huntington Theater. At the Huntington Theater. Thank you very much for all this good information. And then we're playing there through the end of October. We're coming to New York. We have technical rehearsals for one week. Then we begin our opening previews here in New York City at a Broadway theater. In end of October, beginning of November. That In November, November by November. mid-November, I think mid-November or the third week in November is our official opening. And running through the holidays. Running through the holidays. As long as you can. As yes, as open-ended <laughs> run. Yeah. Oh, open-ended. Oh, great. Open-ended great. on this one. Now, I realize that hasn't even happened yet, but looking beyond that, do you think uh, you might do any more projects with your sister, Debbie Allen? You've done several in the past with Debbie. Any future plans, do you think? I would love to do more uh-huh. with Debbie. One of our our favorite projects was The Old Settler, which was theater that we were able to produce for uh, public television for PBS. Uh-huh. And I love working with my sister. Could you do that concurrently with a show, for example? Well, could in I, other words, could, could, I f- could you do some television at the same time that you're appearing in a show? Is that just too... If I too lived off of vitamins <laughs> and had all kinds of physical therapies, yeah, I could do it. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think there's any replacement for mm-hmm. sleep. <laughs> yeah. now, how about uh, working with Bill Cosby again? I know from looking at int- various internet postings, people would 
uh, love to see you back working with him. Do you think there's any chance of doing any, even a special? Of oh, I don't know. He he called uh, after the um, Tony Awards to congratulate me. And he said, well, you've left me now. And I said, left you? What are you talking about? I'm sitting here waiting for my next call for you to tell me what we're doing next. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love him. And I I would always welcome the opportunity to be with him and to work with him in whatever capacity. Is there anything that you have not done that you would love to do in the future, be it showbiz or otherwise? I mean, that, not necessarily on the stage, but just in life. Oh, I'd love to... Um, I'd love to travel mm-hmm. a little more. There's some places that I'd like to see. Such as? I'd love to go to Greece. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see um, historical sites in Ethiopia. I, I'm, I have a passion for the ancient, you see. I'd like to visit Peru. Mm. I've visited uh, ancient Mayan and uh, Toltec and Aztec ruins in Mexico. And some historical sites here in the United States of those Native American sites that date back 10,000 years. I have a passion for antiquities. I think that it's a mistake for us to lose them. There is much for us to learn about life in studying the way that people lived. Much for us to learn. I can see a, a television series based on that, on one of the uh, one of the Discovery Networks or whatever. Oh. You hosting it and traveling the world doing it. Oh, thank you for that thought. <laughs> Wouldn't it be wonderful if I could set that up for you? I can't, but it would be wonderful if I could. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, we thank you very much for being here. Congratulations again on winning the Tony as the best actress in a play. And um, although your run is only limited to another week or so here in New York, it's been a wonderful run for you. The theaters have been packed, and... Uh, you and the Breaking entire house cast. records yeah. plays do not do what this play has done in mm. terms of in terms of audience, and that's that's remarkable. It has and literally packed to, in. to everyone in it. Certainly, you know, Sean Combs, you, Audrey McDonald, Sanaa Lath, and and all of that. But it's great to know that even though this has been a limited run, people get to see you again very very soon. And even in a in a matinee performance, standing room only, quite literally, not an empty seat in the house. So mm. it's a tribute to all of you. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for j- visiting us here on Downstage Center at XM Satellite Radio. I'm John Von Susten. I'm Howard Sherman. And please join us again next time. Thank you.